Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast, presented by Dr. Jody Jones, DDS. We are part of the 440 Sports Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, Corey Chavis. He, of course, one of the all-time greats of Vanderbilt football. He is very active in the sports media business. He got to come see three days of practice last week. We talked in the last episode about offense. This time we'll talk defense and special teams. So I hope you enjoy this episode with my good friend, Corey Chavis. Corey Chavis joins me. This is part two of our podcast looking at Vanderbilt for the 22 football season, talking about what we saw in camp. We talked about offense in the first one. Tonight, we will go into defense and special teams. Corey, thanks for being with me again. Man, thanks a lot, man. I'm I'm always excited to come back on, and, and then we talk a little chop shop, I guess is what I like to call it, chop shop. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what were your impressions on the defense when you saw Vanderbilt for three days? I was pretty impressed. I, I have to. I guess the first thing I had told you was that I was impressed with the fact that uh, Howell was able, John Howell was able to come in and uh, implement what he's been able to do and incorporate it uh, pretty seamlessly. It looked like to me. I don't know what you've seen through most of camp, but uh, very impressed with his communicative ability and how the guys responded to him. And I think probably, Chris, for me, the biggest thing I look through is walkthroughs. The walkthroughs have to be loose, but they have to be intense. And I would would say I was most impressed by their walkthroughs. A walkthrough will tell you a lot about how focused a a team's defense is uh, because that's one of those periods where if offensively in a walkthrough – you're actually executing the play. So even if you're just kind of walking through the route, you still have the quarterback throw the football to the receiver, whereas defensively it's about being in the right fit, the right gap, and almost about visualizing what you've actually already done either in practice or seen on film. And you really have to understand the adjustments that the defensive coordinator is making, and I thought they impressed during those periods. Yeah, give me an example of some details that stood out to you in a walkthrough that maybe we wouldn't pick up on and, and why those things were meaningful. Well, shifts. You know, how many times do you see a team shift in before the snap and the defense not be able to make the correct adjustments? And that was one of the things that I saw uh, the defensive coordinator, the, the guy who I mentioned earlier, uh, really emphasizing, I felt like it, it was was how you would adjust to the shifts. So, you know, for the most part, I, I feel like that that part. Um, I, I think for from that perspective, I think they're gonna be they're gonna be in good shape. You know what I mean? I think that that's something that um, if you really look at if you really look at what uh, they're, they're doing in terms of being able to adjust to. Um, the offense actually changing the formation before the snap, uh, and that's going to happen for you a lot of times uh, in, in the in the SEC. And I, I think, I mean, Nick Howell has been probably, I guess, one of the um, 
I mean, he learned under Bronco Mendenhall, but I, I think the fact that uh, he just understands really what um, and maybe how to attack a, a, an offense's protection schemes when, when you actually do pressure, I think that'll help the defense this year. When you watched them play, what were the things that stood out as potential strengths? Well, I think one of the things that stood out was I, I feel like uh, Anthony Orgy, when he's on top of his game, um, he's going to be able to cover a lot of ground uh, and a lot of the different coverages that they may employ. I like a guy like uh, Michael Owusu. Uh, he's somebody that in this defense can shine. Uh, it's a multiple defense, and you're going to be able to move guys around. Um, I think one of the big things I like about Awusu is that he's also very efficient on special teams. I watched him a, a year ago in that in that facet of his game be uh, pretty uh, spectacular at times. I mean, he was a left guard on the kickoff return. He played the R5 on the kickoff team. He was a left guard on the punt team. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, he comes from, he's got these athletic bloodlines, but he's got heavy hands. And so in, in this Howell-based defense, I think you're going to have to have guys who can set the edge. And you're going to have to have some guys who can set the edge with some length who are have that outside linebacker type uh, frame and, and personality to a certain degree. He, along with, I, I think the, maybe the trump card in, in their defense is a guy that I think everybody is, I think relatively excited about. I know you've kind of uh, mentioned, you know, quite some time that uh, you, you were wondering, I guess, like where he would end up in terms of, and I'm talking about the Ricky Wright. I, I feel like, what do you think about him? Well, my suspicion, and I had no information on this going into camp, Corey, was that he was just too good of an athlete to keep off the field. And I just speculated that maybe – he could land at that other safety spot because they were lacking experience there. You know, two and two added up to four in this case, and and that's what he's been playing. Uh, so, and I don't know, I don't know what to make of him yet. The athleticism is there. He's been a little limited um, with an injury, I guess. In camp is a good way to say it. So I'm not sure entirely what he is when he unlocks all his potential. But but having said that, it's looked good to me. When I've seen him before, when I saw him last year, I guess in fall camp or or was it spring practice the year before? I forget now. But point is, I've seen him make plays. I've seen his athleticism. Uh, that that seems like a right fit for him, but it's still a, I guess a work in progress is a good way to say it. I'm not meaning that to say that that he's lacking, but you know the fact is it, it's a new year. It's sort of a new role for him, and I'm very interested to see how that lands. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I, I want to see whether or not I think what they think about him. You know, I looked at him as a guy that was uh, could potentially develop into something different. But I, I think what they and you can see some of the movement capability that he has. Uh, it's just about you know whether or not that matches up against the, some of the smaller, quicker type receivers that you would have if you're gonna you know be in coverage at all. But uh, I do think that there is some potential rush capability where he could be a matchup issue for running backs. So I don't know whether they're going to use him in that facet or not. Uh, but he presents an intriguing dilemma 
for offenses when he's on the field, particularly if you decide that you're going to go with two or three tight ends or if you decide to go tight ends. Because now he can come in and he can kind of take out one of your tight ends. He can set the edge in the run game. He could possibly play off the hash. I think he just he gives the team a little bit of versatility, and, and I do like the way he could kind of fit in the role. I, I want to see Davion Davis get back. I don't know when that'll be, but I was as impressed with him as anybody in terms of just being able to almost bend like a linebacker at about 280 pounds, a leverage base player. Not necessarily real long, but – I think he could add a different dimension to their defense. And I think with the link they have, particularly when you talk about a guy like Malik Langham, he could be a good complement inside. Yeah, I want to circle back to the line in a minute and, and talk about Davis and Langham and some other guys. But back to Wright, one other thing I liked about him, Corey, you don't see a lot of six foot four, 230-pound safeties for a defense that you look at and say – size might be an issue, especially with some injury issues. I I don't know how much you make up having a bigger safety, but it doesn't hurt. And the other thing is on a team that sort of lacks pass rushers in terms of of what you get from them on the defensive line, I I like those two things about Dericke being in the the lineup. Now, again, I don't don't mean to hijack this and make this a – Ricky Wright conversation <laughs> solely, but those are two other things that I liked about that move. Well, yeah, I, I actually agree with you, though, and I, and that's one of the things that I was interested to see whether or not he'd be isolated in that particular role in terms of maybe being a designated pass rusher, and I'm not sure that that's going to happen. We'll find out as the season goes on. Um, again, uh, Howell, it, it, Nick Howell is a very, very – uh, versatile in terms of um, what he likes to do defensively, and he's multiple. And so you, you kind of don't really know where you're going to get some of the pressure concepts. That's going to be a challenge, I think, for Hawaii in week one, a team shifting, not necessarily from an entirely new offensive scheme, but the run and shoot is going to be a little bit different, and they're going to be trying to get the ball out quick. So uh, you're going to have some isolation situations for your offensive linemen you got to make sure that you turn the protection the right way on third down. But I definitely think Howell is going to understand and have a pretty good feel for what they're going to do protection-wise. That'll be the thing to watch in week one. Well, Corey, sticking on the back end there, and I'll get to linebackers in a minute because that's the next component of this. But I feel like one place where they've got a chance to be sneakily a lot better than people think is those safety spots because we just talked about Dericke and what he potentially brings. I think Max Worship has had a really good camp. In my mind, he's gone from just a guy to a guy that I think has really started to make some things happen. And then depending on what you call Jalen Mahoney, I think he's been sort of a nickel corner, but – he almost plays more like a safety at times, and I think maybe he's gotten some reps as safety. But if you consider those three guys, I, I love Mahoney. I just think that kid shows up. He's been good darn near every practice. And I think I think a lot of people, you know, right hit the portal. You saw write-ups that talked about that, but I don't think you saw a lot of the, the people that wrote about the team in magazines and other places talk about him being back. So you throw in him, you throw in an improved worship, 
and you throw in a Mahoney who I think has been good before and I think is primed to have his best year yet, I think that's an area where they're going to be maybe stronger than people perceive. Yeah, I can see that. I think Mahoney is uh, flat out a draft pick. So that's just I'll I'll put that out there now. Um, I thought he was one of their – I thought he was a competitive corner. I thought there were some times where his eyes got him into trouble, but um, I thought he established his jams from the outside in. I thought he sunk his weight to tackle and wrap tackle pretty efficiently. He would he would actually, you know, he's a little bit fast reading through the three-step back corner. Um, and, and sometimes you had to watch sitting on routes. That may not be quite as much of a problem. He's got a feel now inside a little bit of he's trying to kind of measure how you're going to have to manage some of those routes inside. Uh, but the thing that I like about him is that there, there's not a difference in play speed down to down. And I think that's one of the first things you look for when you're evaluating a player is, is there a difference in the play speed down to down, whether or not they're right or wrong? Because you're going to make up a lot of your wrongs by your play speed not changing. And I think that's the big thing with Mahoney and gives him an opportunity. He's 5'11", about 195 pounds. He's going to be one of those players. And I think the coaching staff is really accentuating his strengths to a degree. He's going to be able to shine in this uh, Howell-based system better maybe even than some of the other guys he's had, like Nick Grant, Joey Blunt at Virginia. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how he does. But to your point about Maxwell Worship, former lacrosse player, Cardinal Gibbons High School, I, I like what he's done in terms of he's a, a mature in terms of uh, getting it done in the classroom at a high level at a university that challenges you. SEC academic all honor roll. But last year, I thought he had some false steps in quarters coverage. He's cleaned that up in camp. He's filled the alleys well. He's wrapped. He's been the most physical defensive player, period, at any position. He's made statements, and I agree with you. Okay, let's talk linebackers. You talked about Anthony Orgy, but next to him, I think a very intriguing set of guys battling for one spot in Ethan Barr and Kane Patterson. Both of them are different body types. Both of them bring different things. How do you see it shaking out in the reps in those two guys, and what do you think each brings to their defense? Well, I think it helps that Langston is there, your little brother. You want to come play with him. I think that's a big deal. I don't care what anybody says. You can play it off, but when you want to show him how you can get it done, and then you want him to be proud of you and then actually maybe compete with you at some point. So I think for for when you bring somebody in like Kane, who had a chance to potentially, I watched the Clemson linebackers, he had a chance to play there. So coming here was a big deal. And I like some of the things he did in coverage last week. I also like some of the reactions that I saw when there was, an, was a, a, a chance for him to just maybe, you know, maybe delay a little bit. But if there was, he saw something, he went. I, I saw a couple of plays that, that I liked from that perspective. Um, but you know, it's difficult because you got a guy like Ethan Barr who, what, he had three interceptions last year. Yeah. And you, 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 to, to just take him off the field with those type of zone instincts. I even saw him look up a couple of routes and, and zone coverage, being able to match that final number two or number three receiver in zone. Uh, Barr just has a feel and he's got excellent size. So can you take Barr off the field, bring this guy on? A lot of question marks. You can't take Orgy off. Gives you that safety-like 
range at, at linebacker. So I, I really think it's going to be a challenge as to how you use Patterson and how you use Barr and when you use them and where. Yeah, I agree. And the thing that makes it interesting is I think Patterson's got some pass rush ability. But like you said, Barr did some things in coverage. I think in addition to the three interceptions, he had four breakups. I mean, you don't look at him and think a kid who can cover in the passing game, but he obviously did that. Yeah, he did. And the question I have in terms of of, of Barr I really like some, you know, to me, it looks like a three, four inside linebacker, which they run a lot of three yeah. man. Fronts are, and, and, and that means that you're going to be able to be big enough to kind of deal with the guard. If the guard is uncovered for for your fans listening, a lot of times with some of these four, three alignments, we cut, co- you cover up the three technique, the, the three technique covers up that guard. And that allows maybe the, the will linebacker to not, you know, have a little bit more room to operate. But when you're in this, when you're in any type of thirty front defense, which we consider three defensive linemen, a guy like him with his size, you know, he can make some things happen. And then you go back to high school; he's always been a pretty instinctive player, over three hundred tackles in high school. But one of the things that that you want to do if you're the opposite team, week one, get him off the field. If you're if you're a wide, you come out four wide receivers. You can you can potentially get him off the field. Who's the one that's making the, the 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 calls on defense? Is it him? Is it Orgy? Yeah, I think both of them are capable. But if you can get him off the field, can you bring? Can you get their dime and nickel package on the field early? And then can those guys cover my number three and number four receivers? That's what Timmy Chang has to figure out. Well, I think Barr did make the calls for them last year. That's an interesting point, is if you take him off the field, you're lacking that, although I'm, I'm sure someone can fill in, but that's a that's an excellent point. Well, one other thing that you heard Clark Lee mention, and I don't know if you were here that day for it, but he said when I asked him some of these questions about how do you split the time between those guys, he said, you know, we got too many reps last year for Orgy and Barr, and I think he was right. They just didn't have any depth behind them that was playable probably at the level those guys were giving them. Now all of a sudden that turns into a a much better situation. And Arrington Trusdale is a guy too that I think has been competent at times, and you're probably not going to see him a lot unless Orgy's hurt, but you'll see him a little bit more. I just think that their options there when those guys are off the field are going to be better than they were a year ago by a good margin. Yeah, they can be. And and I think uh, to your point, uh, he also, because he contributes on special teams, you don't have as much of a problem. I'm talking about truth. You're not going to have yeah. as much of a problem with him being able to get in the rotation uh, at linebacker. You, you got more of a problem if a guy doesn't contribute on special teams at all. But when you look at, Hawaii, again, I, I think it's very important to kind of get a feel for they've got some new guys they're going to be trying to bring into the to the mix, right? You lost Calvin Turner, who was probably the most versatile player, one of the most versatile players in Hawaii history. The entire offense centered around them. And if you're Vanderbilt, one of the things that I'm thinking is pressure this team because they had a lot of problems with late wraparound blitzes a year ago. Uh, they, they, they linebackers in the a gap gave them problems against UCLA early in the season. And those things don't change regardless of a coach changing. 
there's something to be said about guys having problems dealing with stunts. And, and I think Vanderbilt can get after this team inside and maybe not have to bring as much pressure when you look at what – there was some miscommunication. You go look at the Oregon State game a year ago with Hawaii's offensive line, and there was miscommunication with their right guard and, it's, and, and the right tackle picking some things up with on a cornerback blitz. You got a cornerback blitz and coming free. I thought this team had problems a year ago with pressure concepts. Run and shoot or not, if you run and shoot it, your best offensive lineman for Hawaii is L. Manning. He's pretty good, but he doesn't have an anchor. And so for me, uh, you're going to try to blitz away from him and his side. And, and I think that's something that can help Vanderbilt in this game. Was C.J. Taylor playing the day as you were there? I, I didn't get a chance. You're talking about the six-foot-five? No, uh, I'm talking about the kid who's going to start at them in the anchor position. Um, Number 13? Yes. Yeah, I was impressed with him. I, I thought you were I thought you were maybe referring to uh the there was a quarterback and I didn't know if that was his name, but Oh, no. that's Walter Taylor. Yeah, that's that's yeah, another yeah. conversation. But yes. Taylor, 13. Yeah, I was impressed with him. He's a he's a versatile guy. And again, it, it's interesting you brought that up when we were talking about the run and shoot, Chris, because really those are the types of players that can cause problems for this football team in terms of Hawaii, as long as the short passing game, when a run-and-shoot offense, it's really about a short passing game, not necessarily the vertical passing game because it's a timing, rhythm-based offense that consistently challenges you to be able to cover the width of the field as well as the, 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 vertical, the vertical stretch. So uh, a guy like him could become a big factor in week one. Oh, I think he's going to be a big factor this season. They were high on him in the summer he had, and I needed to see it to believe it. He had a bad auto wreck last week, and he missed a few practices. In fact, if you saw the photos, you're just thankful the kid's not dead. But he's come back with a bang since you left town, Corey. He has made, in fact, I'm doing this Wednesday night. He made a couple of big plays today, made a couple yesterday. I just think this kid's been all over the field, and they've talked about how he just like if you if, if he's in the play, you you hear him making noise and hitting kids, and that's a spot where like all of a sudden, you know, you're questioning the talent a year ago. Now I'm going well. I, I don't know what you do. I mean, I'm I'm sure they've got the answer, and it depends on the situation. But if a lot of times he's on the field or Mahoney's on the field. If if you're you're playing nickel, the the uh, anchor position seems to be the one that comes off. But I, I look at them, whichever alignment they're in, they've either got Mahoney on the field or him on the field, or maybe some of both of them at times. And just the way Taylor has come on in the fall, I, I just think that that gives him another kid who can make plays for a team that really lacked them a year ago. Well, I mean, to your point, I guess on 8-4-22, one of the things that impressed me about him was a feel on the goal line. And if you can do those types of things, if you can be productive in short yardage or uh, those types of goal line situations, then that gives you more versatility when you're out in the open field because you can do more things with that player. So I certainly understand where you're coming from with them. And, and, and I think that when it comes down to it, Again, uh, 
you go back a couple of days, even from there in a red zone period, he showed up once again. So, and, and that's just from my notes uh, uh, during the week of practice. Uh, when you when you have guys continue to flash and you keep writing their names down, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know. That, that to me kind of kind of makes me, you know, kind of say, okay, well, let me kind of keep an eye on that guy so, so I get your point. Yeah, I've, I've been keeping a lot of notes, and his name has been one that I've written down a lot lately. All right, shifting gears here, Corey, defensive line. Something, though, I do want to mention him. Sure. He's a little bit of a trump card uh, for, for the defense because he has an ability to be able to, at his size, he's, it seems like he's gotten even bigger and stronger. I mean, he looks like a, really what I would consider an NFL uh, four technique, you know, line up right over the tackle on a three-man front. Um, I, I thought I really enjoyed his matchup last year. ETSU, the right tackle, Trayvon Shorts, he's now at LSU. Struggled to disengage from him early, but I thought he got better playing with his hands later in the game. I saw him last week uh, in some of the, the one-on-ones on a late-delayed TE stunt in the defensive line, O-line drills. He ran over an offensive guard. He's heavy. Uh, I, I feel like he's, you know, you know, I've seen him get his hands up when he's been at the right defensive end position before. Uh, he's a very interesting player uh, that if he, if the light completely comes on, uh, I think he'll be surprised where he'll end up. My audio broke up when you said the name. Who was that? Nate Clifton. Clifton. That's that's who I figured. I think Clifton's been better. Um, I think they're limiting his reps, and I probably would too. Because that's one of your big concerns right now, Corey, is they've got to get healthy there. We've not seen Davion Davis all camp. We've not seen Christian James. We have not seen Devin Lee. And now Braden Baps, who I think could help them in spots maybe off the edge, is out for a while. And I think that's the thing everybody's watching is when do they get those kids back? Well, James can one gap. And that means a guy that can shoot up the field and take a gap. He's, I mean, about. 275 pounds, right? And he's got pretty good height and length as well. Satisfactory hand usage, a little bit limited in the lower body, sometimes holding the point of attack, uh, particularly at the four. You know, he can play a little bit of the inside shade, uh, four technique, defensive end position, decent stack and shed. Uh, I, I think he can challenge for more playing time. Uh, I'd like to see him be able to get on back in there uh, because he can give you, again, the depth you're talking about. Well, I think James could maybe help them at that end, too. When I'm afraid they're a little light at that position right now. Well, I mean, Clifton is going to help them for sure, but I just think that they need a little more bulk along that line, and that he's been a guy who has, I think, been able to help them at different spots before. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that. Now, now you want to have a guy that defensive, you know, if you, again, you're playing a three-man front, you're in the SEC. So you're in the mini NFL. So what you want to have is a guy that's about 275 to 285 pounds, ideally, and still with some movement skill because that allows you when you, you know, slide your fronts, they can play other positions on the line. You're not going to just always stay in a traditional three-man front. Use the three-man front and you move your outside linebackers, linebackers all around, other defensive linemen to create various fronts so you can move the angles of the offensive line. So that is where having those two those those two positions 
Some people describe them as defensive tackles, but they're really defensive ends in the three-man front. Those guys have to be the most versatile players uh, in a three-man front because they've got to be able to play two or three positions effectively at all times. Is this the year that it comes together for Malik Langham? This season of the Vandy Sports Podcast has been made possible by my friend, Dr. Jody Jones, DDS. When it comes to general or cosmetic dentistry services, Jody is the best in Nashville. Just check out his client list. It testifies to that. He sees movie stars, music stars, athletes, coaches, you name it. Jody is the dentist of choice for stars in Nashville, but he sees regular folks like you and I as well. What people love about Jody's office is the ambiance. It's relaxing. It's friendly. Someone described it to me as a tooth spa. Whether your needs are general or cosmetic, go see Jody today. Call him 615-270-2322. See him at 55 Music Square East, not far from downtown or the Vanderbilt campus. Jody is a former Vanderbilt football player and a huge Commodore booster, so go and talk Vandy sports with him while you're there. Go see Jody Jones today. Thank him for his support of this podcast because without it, this season would not be possible. I think it has to. I really do. And, I, and the reason I say that is because he's got a coach in Larry Black who understands what not to do. So he's going to tell you what not to do. So if you take that coaching in, I think then you can begin to reach your full potential with his capability, and even when I talk to him, I don't know that he really realizes how good he can be. I really don't. I mean, he's somebody that right now, again, we talked a little bit about, I guess, Isaquatora in terms of just yeah. looking the part. There's nobody that looks the part more than Malik Langham, but so what, right? Play the part. And and I do think that you see the flash. It's like, you know, it was it's so interesting just, watching him even run to the ball. I think he wants to be better, and I think he's shown effort, you know, at least in the practices I was at. And you've seen that in spots. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't watch him in, in the games last year and feel like, you know, he was dogging it at all. But I just believe there's another level he can reach. And, and I think that's what Coach Black, who's an excellent coach, is trying to get him to get to. Well, the other guy in that injured bunch we've not talked about is Devin Lee, and I think he was certainly going to be in their rotation before the injury, and I think they're hoping to get him back for the opener. Whether they do or not, I don't know, but I looked at him. I've, I've watched him. He's doing a lot of strength stuff just while he's on the sidelines, and he just looks and seems to just in the things I see him do – have that level of size and strength that they don't get on those interdefensive linemen usually. And I think that's a piece that could really help them where they could use it if they can get him back and healthy. Yeah, I, I believe that that's true. I mean, I think it comes down to if you get him back, you know, what happens then the, the Miles Cecil though, right? I mean, I yeah. don't know yeah. what your take on that in terms of, you know, how does that all mix in uh, again, they're very a little bit different. I think Lee's a little longer, uh, but maybe that will help. Maybe that that rotation will help. I, I do believe you got to get enough snaps as a defensive lineman. One of my big jobs for most of my career was 
having to fit with the defensive lineman, having to communicate with the defensive lineman, having to make sure that we got the right close call, the right strength call. And then when I got to fit in the gap, making sure that I feel correctly to get that uh, double team off of that defensive lineman. So there was a lot of communicative or communication between me and the defensive lineman. And there is a rhythm you have to get with the other players defensively. And I, and I understand that now in college football, there's, there's really a two deep. There's no more, and I'm not even just talking about the defensive line. Typically with some teams that I've covered, Chris, there's a two deep period. There's 20 players playing on defense. So that's really what your – that's been always my biggest question, even when I watch teams, is where's that rhythm at with the communication in terms of strong right, strong right, close left, close left, you know what I'm saying? Bow it, bow it, boss, boss, you know what I'm saying? Before it's that – I mean, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's, you know, bow it. I mean, all those different calls you got to make, you know, how are those defensive linemen reacting to those calls? Yeah, well, and and that's that's a great point because – a lot of these guys aren't going to be playing together maybe till the opener. If that's if it works out, because I mean, here we are a couple of weeks out from the opener. And again, we got four guys we're discussing being back, but the communication stuff aside, because I think Cecil and Lee will play the same spot. I think that Devin Lee most likely just based on body type is probably more of a, you use him in the rundowns, you know, third, fourth and short and Cecil, to me, is smaller. Not that he's a small guy, but he's probably not as big as Devin Lee. But he's got a motor, and I'm, yeah. I'm thinking maybe you use him to get after it in passing downs, and and Lee more for running downs, and maybe that's the way those guys split. Yeah, well, I think Cecil is is probably going to be at his best as a run defender in this conference. Now he's good. Now I think he can win. You know, maybe cross in the face if you stun him, slant him, uh, and maybe be able to beat a guard or a center across the face. Uh, whether he has a secondary pass rush counters to be able to engage an offensive lineman and get off, that didn't really show up to me a lot at Cal Poly. So we'll see. I, I think there's there's some leverage at the point of attack with them. Uh, but again, even if you're talking about a pass rush, it's all going to be about the one gap penetration. You know, if you're going to be it, it really to have some production from him in terms of just getting up the field as a quarterback hurry type guy, hasn't really gotten a lot of guys on the ground as of yet. Then that's going to be about one gap. And I, that might be more about some of the, the line stunts and, and, and twists or things like that that you're running. Well, the one thing that I think we both agree on, I think we know where the future of that defensive line is because, goodness, um, Wataha, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Uh, we've talked about him a little bit and just oozing with ability. You said Kwataha? I guess I've been calling him Kwatara. I think it's Wataha, but I don't know that any of us are sure. But hey, man, I apologize. I, I, I had no idea. I'm pretty. I, I take a lot of time with those the pronunciations and and, but I will say this: you need to you know enunciate his name correctly because you're going to be but, calling it a lot. <laughs> yes, I mean he is something else. I I, I tell you, man. I know that um, it, it's got to be a, certainly a, a tough adjustment for him to come over, uh, but I, I even like I like some of the stuff that I saw from him last week. Uh, he's physically right now. He's ready to play in the SEC. Uh, no no doubt. Not, yeah, yeah. Now, 
mentally, we'll see. Because there's a lot of guys that are physically ready to play in the SEC or Pac-12 or Big Ten, whatever it might be. But mentally, are you ready? And, and I think that's the big question. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely a question. I mean, the, the ability's there. And the way that I've talked him up on the podcast and on our boards, people are probably thinking he's going to go out and be all SEC from day one. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying uh, because of everything you said. But I'm, I'm just saying uh, ability-wise – my goodness, when he's got the mental part down and everything, whenever that is, um, no question the physical part is there. Yeah, and, and I think when you're that big and you know you're more physically, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say, you, you can't say you're physically dominant yet, but you know you're more physically superior in terms of the just on the hoof than those other guys. That gives you a little bit more confidence than people may realize. All right, let's talk about the star position uh, because I think that's where a lot of their pass rush is going to have to come from. They moved Elijah McAllister over to defensive end. Miles Caper seems to have the edge right now starting at that position, but you've seen Owusu play there too. Darren Agu, the freshman, is, is really talented too, and I thought at first maybe a little light to play, but I think he's been too productive to sit down. That's going to be an interesting spot to watch. Well, I think it's interesting. I, I, I think uh, Javon Hayes done a good job with the position in terms of being able to make them all feel like that there's a role. And I think when you see them get in and, and they rotate, uh, they all play with the, the, the same energy. Uh, the, the guy for me will be Capers. I, I believe that uh, what you've seen from him so far, uh, he's got a chance. And I don't think he even knows it yet, Chris, but he's got a chance to be a star. And you've got to believe it. You've got to buy into it. You've got to completely understand what they're trying to uh, coach you up on and, and understand that, that the sky is absolutely the limit. Now, with that being said, I, I have there's very few players on the team that I'm as impressed with as a Wusu when you're going down in the R5 on the kickoff, you're the left guard on the kickoff return, the left guard on the punt, uh, again, already has graduated. All those things work in your favor. Um, and and he's also got pretty heavy hands. I think we talked about him a little bit earlier. So that helps out as well. I really feel like McAllister moving where he's moved to and they've moved him around a little bit, I think that'll help. And I believe that eventually he'll start to get a better feel for those positions. Been a little bit different for him so far in camp, kind of playing, a, a, you know, some different roles. Let's talk special teams. I don't think I even have to tell you where we're going to start there. I'll just let you go. <laughs> well, you, you, you must be talking about, I guess, the punter, right? Hey, ball? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I believe that they've got he's, – he's a potential uh, with the directional capability, a potential draft pick. Uh, a little bit inconsistent the one day me and you watched him in terms of losing a couple. But um, even if I were to go back to my notes that I had of him at FAU, uh, pretty consistent in terms of that catch and kick time for me when it hits your hand and when it gets off. Some people look at it snap to kick time. That's how a lot of special teams coaches look at it. For me, I look at it catch and kick. 
that isolates the punter's operation aside from the actual snapper, who actually the long snapper is pretty good too, Wesley Schelling. So, but that's going to help him because he can get down in roughly that 0.72 long snap range. That'll help out uh, Hayball, who's left footed, which is very difficult to gauge. Uh, the directional capability. I think some of the, the, the punts spiral downward. A little bit of a funny spin. I think he's pretty solid on his drop punts. Got an excellent special teams coach in Justin Lustig. Uh, so all the things kind of match up for him in, in terms of it working out. It's just going to be about consistency. I, I think that that's going to be the big thing for him. What else stands out to you on special teams before we go to the mailbag? Well, I, I think from a special teams perspective, I'm interested to see the kickoff return game. I think in kickoff coverage and punt coverage, this team will be very good. Can somebody develop into a dynamic uh, kickoff returner? I think that's something that wins a game or two. Uh, that's often underrated. Now, when you look at this team a year ago, you had Johnson and, and and Bodie played a little bit. I don't know if Bodie is Bodie really a kickoff returner. You know what I'm saying? I think that's the big thing. I believe that Rocco Griffin can give him something at that position. I don't know exactly how how they rotated it so far. I was only there for a couple of days. How have they rotated that returner position so far? I know they yeah. got Mon- I think they've got the the freshman uh, who's the four three guy McGowan back there, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean they've they've narrowed it to three or four guys. I think my expectation is McGowan is the guy that probably leads leads them in return yards if you combine punts and kickoffs. Yeah, he's got to be a little bit more secure. I watched him muff a punt the first day I was there, so you got to be a little bit more secure with, when it comes to ball security. Period. In term, particularly if you're returning punts, that'll crush you. I mean, the reason why I say that is because I muffed some punts. My sophomore year in school, one muff punt led to a key turnover against Arkansas, a game we lost. And then I fumbled a, a kickoff return against Notre Dame that got returned for a touchdown. So for me, I personally understand how much those things make a big difference at Vanderbilt. We can't afford in a special teams game not to win. And I made it a point by the time I became a junior to become one of the best in the country returning kickoffs and never take any play for granted on that on that side of the ball. You ready for the mailbag? No. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> so there. <laughs> Today's mailbag is sponsored by Sutherland & Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in an accident, Give Taylor or Russell a call, that number 615-846-6200, see what your rights are and if they can help. Bobby Two Times says, how do you evaluate the corners on this team and is there any NFL talent you can see? It, uh, he says at corner or anywhere else on the team. Um, let's focus on the corners there. We didn't really talk about those and that was not intentional. Well, yeah, I think B.J. Anderson has NFL talent, long, strong, uh, I thought he, the good days I was there, Kenny, you know, he's recovered pretty well from the injury. I think he's got a chance to, to play there. Uh, uh, Tyson Russell, you can go back to, um, out of plantation high school film. Uh, he had the same type of stuff you're seeing now in terms of instincts. He's got pretty good size. He's not a, he's a thicker, uh, corner, 
uh, who, who can plant and drive and, and has very good eye speed. And we always talk about foot speed. But we rarely talk about eye speed. And, and, and Tyson Russell has quite a bit of that. I like Justin Harris as a potential contributor. He can play safety or corner. Uh, I think when you go down some of the other guys that that I think are a little bit underrated, one guy that's not necessarily a corner, but John House can give you some versatility. He's from Nashville at safety because he can cover a little bit. He actually returns kicks as well. Uh, we've already talked about Jalen Mahoney. I think he's a draft pick. Uh, I, I think Quantavius Gaskins, they kind of call him Gumbo, by 61190 out of Atlanta. Uh, I, I, I like some of the things I've, I've seen from him. Uh, now, he's going to have to be a little bit more consistent in terms of the hand placement and press and, and, and continue to get a feel for playing off. Yeah, but uh, I think Coach Jackson does an excellent job uh, of working those things and talking about those things and talking them through reps. Uh, th- these are all guys, uh, Sani Sandy Aloha, uh, and he, he's a pretty impressive guy as well. Uh, Trudell Berry, I mean, they've got a lot of talent at, at defensive back. They- they've done an excellent job recruiting that position. But, but I guess maybe Jadis Richard, that's a guy I didn't get to see a lot. Apparently, Chris, he's been the best guy maybe out of all these guys in camp, right? Yeah, he was the guy that the first few days at camp looked the most likely of all the true freshmen to play. Now, he's got, I think, some kind of an injury, so that's to be determined. But I, I thought that he yeah, he, he might even see the field like in dime packages. Um, so there, there's that, that's one to watch, but I think that's a little to be determined based on the fact he's not been out there in a bit. Ugachuk will, in my opinion – is going to continue to challenge with playing time all year because he, he he just he loves the game. He's got long arms. He's quick. Uh, I, I I think he has pretty good recovery speed. He can make up for some of his mistakes in coverage. Uh, he's a player that, that you kind of keep your eye on. Now, certainly, Jamison Wharton and Trudell Berry. Maybe they're maybe they're a year away. I don't know that they they, they, they they have everything you look for in terms of traits. Uh, but he got Chuck Wu kind of caught my eye a little bit when I was there during the week, and um, I, I'm pretty impressed with really just just what he put forth. Yeah, Wharton is a guy that's gotten some rave reviews at times too. No, here's what drives me crazy, and I griped you about this last week while we watched a bunch of those freshmen cinch their jerseys and push them up. And I'm sitting there watching with binoculars, and I cannot tell what's 28 or 38 or 29 because they're all wearing their jerseys up. So um, my ability to evaluate those kids has been really difficult because I can't tell who's who half the time. or Not half the time, 95% of the time. Yeah, well, I I like that part of it because that means that they're they're concerned about swag. If you're not concerned about – swag as they call it now back in my day it was just called you know just who's getting about it but I, that you got to be able to, your dress code has to be right and so that that's good that you don't even know the numbers because that means they're concentrating on the right thing you have to you got to feel like i think that contributes to just how you look does have something to do with how you play you you want to have a, a a tight dress code particularly a corner as long as you hit 
if you got a tight dress code and you don't hit anybody, that's a weak dress code to me. But you know, you get my point. That's all great, but I focus on what's good for me, Corey. <laughs> I can't I can't tell them apart, and that's a problem. <laughs> so the dress code bothers you? Uh, it, as long as it's impeding my ability to cover them, yes. So, but you yeah, know, so you're not worried about dress code. You worry about being able to see the number, like <laughs> right down. People are like, how does this guy look? I'm like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which guy he is because he looks just like the guy next to him <laughs> from from 300 feet away through binoculars because of the way they're wearing the jerseys. But anyway, it's 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 annoying, kind of amusing. But uh, in any case, they got they do have a lot of guys who I think can really run who are new. Yeah, they can really run, and and I didn't think they they lacked instincts. Which points back to you know Bart Simmons and his recruiting staff. Uh, you know you get a bunch of guys who can run in a straight line, but you know can they ever? How how do they panic when they're beating off beating off the line of scrimmage? Stuff like that is important to to kind of look at too. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The next question comes from Viewperior. What would be your NIL strategy if you were Vanderbilt? Boy, we could probably talk about that for a while. Well, I think the NIL strategy has to be, and you've got to kind of target, I believe, because it's it's not just about being able to just say I can go after everybody because everybody wouldn't be able to get into school, right? So that's the first part of it. And then once you actually have identified those people who have maybe just, I don't know, it had to be a 4.6, I guess you can have a 5.0 GPA now coming out of high school, uh, Chris, but finding those guys that are in that range and being able to offer something uh, from that perspective, you know what I'm saying, including money, I believe that that I think that's going to be the big key. You know, how does that all kind of equate and maybe have some type of parallel to it? I, I think that's something that you've got to kind of consider. Similar question here from Vandy Fitz. Corey, taken all together with NIL, and the Wild West have limited to no transfer restrictions. Has Lee's Vandy program been put in a better or worse position relative to our competition? I know we're at the bottom of the SEC apple cart, but do the new rules make it easier to catch up or harder for Vanderbilt not to lose more ground? Well, it's about, I believe, also finding the guys that slipped up that were overlooked with your NIL money in FCS, that's a big question. I'm going to answer both of the last two questions with this. Every year during the draft, I see these players that are completely overlooked when it comes to, and a lot of the times, some of them academically as well, when it comes to FCS football. So the NIL money is not just going to be able to say, okay, we're going to just have NIL money for the guys coming out of high school. It's going to have to be concentrated on the FCS players who are elite. You can compete for those guys. If they got good grades and they're elite and they can get into school, you got to be able to go out and find those players. That's going to be the key that negates having to compete with some of the NIL high school players coming out because you may not be able to compete with you know what people are offering some of those players coming out. And maybe you don't compete for Jordan Addison, right? But can you at least compete for the better players in FCS football or Division II? 
And can those players come in and are they that elite at those levels that they can come in and compete at the SEC level? That's kind of where I think you also have to take a look at NIL money. Okay, the next one. Let's see. I don't think you agree with that, Chris, right? Well, no, I, I don't. I just don't know what to make of it all, to be honest, Corey. I, I don't think that's a bad answer. It's one I hadn't thought of. Um, well, yeah, that's a, Isaiah Land at Florida A&M. Yeah, you know, he, I mean, I, I, I just don't – I don't know where this is going. I mean, I think the sense that I get is it's not going to go on like it is forever uh, and, and maybe not that much longer. When you say forever, what do you mean? I think there's eventually going to be restrictions on it. I've heard that. I agree with that. I, I, I really don't. And, and, and what I'll say about that is I don't think there'll be restrictions because unless you're going to start restricting the coach's availability to leave at the world. Remember, yeah. I was in the building in 1994. Jerry Donato left at their five and six season where he lost the last game of the season 65 to nothing. That is what has enabled all of this to grow into this big mushroom that just keeps getting bigger. So yeah. I, I think that has really been the big problem. And remember, the coaches' salaries kept getting bigger. Yeah. So that's really where this all evolved from, that a guy that goes five and six and loses 65 to nothing gets the LSU job. <laughs> you know what I mean? So what we're, what we're really discussing here is a much bigger landscape, and particularly when it comes to guys, a lot of these guys that – are transferring, don't forget, are still aiding those schools because they get the degrees. And that helps the scores that you have in terms of you get degrees that actually helps your, your final ranking academically before they leave. A lot of people are forgetting about that part of it as well. So there's well, a lot of different factors in play here. Yeah, I, I'm, and just to be clear, I, I don't have any issue with kids getting paid, not at all, and I haven't for a while. Um, my thing is just more like when, when just one school can just outbid everybody for players, and that's you know the determining factor in where all these kids are going. I, I've heard, you know, I think there's some sentiment that you may end up well, seeing man. something like congressional regulation with the salary cap kind of thing. Well, Vanderbilt can compete at that level. Let's yeah. See, let's, there's enough money at Vanderbilt to compete from the NIL level. Let's, let's don't make any mistake about that at all. Yeah. So let, let's, let's, that, that's not an excuse. In fact, that could actually be an advantage for Vanderbilt. You know, there's no way we're going to sit up here and talk about we're 14th academically by U.S. News and World Report and then say we don't have enough money to go NIL. This right. is more about administration letting the reins off and saying we want to compete and giving Clark Lee and his staff the correct opportunity to go out and be able to go after who they need to go after. Because you can do it in every sport, not just with Clark Lee. It could be with whether it's with Corbin. I was just watching Kyle Nevin, Baylor infielder, outfielder, first baseman, Oklahoma went and got him. But the Dodgers drafted him in the 11th round, and then the Dodgers said, you know what, we're not going to let you go to Oklahoma, even though you transferred from Baylor. They gave him $397,000, and he left and went to the Dodgers as an 11th round pick. So don't give me this, you know, we can't do it. Yeah, we can do it. You just got to put more money out there. And we have the money at Vanderbilt. Yeah. It actually works to our advantage in I.O. Well, it should. I don't know that it has right now, but let me I ask you. Well, go ahead. 
that again goes back to Chris. Are we going to make the commitment to athletics? Yeah. We've made a big commitment, you know, was it how much? Three hundred million? Maybe closer to four. I mean, with inflation, who knows now? But yes, it's a lot of money. So if you're gonna invest that much, don't stop there. Right? No, I, I agree. I agree. And I think that I think their strategy is gonna try to be competitive and and not let it cost them kids, especially as is it pertains to retaining them. Right, right. Well, and that makes sense. But uh, the retaining process, if somebody wants to leave, let them leave. There's more players out there than you think. And I think that's the thing. Uh, For example, I I was talking with uh, Coach Blasek the other day. We were talking about Dylan Redunds. I think he's with the Titans now, Mm -hmm. second-round pick. Get a guy like him. You know what I'm saying? A a guy with a second-round pick, North Dakota State. you got to go out and get – I mean, you you find those players – that are good players at the FCS level, and you go out and say, no, we're going to go get this guy. They got a guy out there right now, uh, Cody Mott. We were talking about him. Another tackle that's probably going to be not quite as long as Redunds or or even Cordell Volson, who came out from there. But, again, I'm just mentioning guys at the FCS level who are known names. Eric Barrier last year at Eastern Washington, maybe not even an SEC quarterback. But you've got to be able to find who actually translates to this conference and the evaluation piece is still in place. Well, I actually like your answer and where that makes sense for Vanderbilt is, you know, the talented kids that they get, uh, they're kids that, that might grow into players that could play at Georgia and Alabama, but it's going to take two to three years of development. Whereas the kids Alabama and Georgia get are plug and play from the minute they get to campus in a lot of cases. Now where, where I'm, I'm not going to say I have a problem with your answer because I don't. I think it's a great answer. But are, are, are they going to – I guess here's where, I'm, here's where I'm going, Corey. Are they going to be um, – is this gonna, just going to be just like high school recruiting where um, – I, I guess I, a better way to phrase it is are they going to be more locked in on those guys, you think, than, than LSU, Alabama, Georgia? Or are those schools going to be pursuing those kids at that rate too? Well, of course they're going to be pursuing, but you can't get everybody. If you're going to go get Jermaine Burton and Tyler Harrell and Tyler Steen, if you're Alabama, you can't. There's only so many scholarships. Don't don't forget, COVID-19 is going to run out at some point. Yeah. So you're going to start recruiting. Those kids are going to roll out. There's not going to be quite as many scholarships available. And if there are more those scholarships available, then you have to be able to go find somebody at these other schools, and if they are available, they're going to get the Tyler Harrell. And while they're doing that, can you find somebody better than Harrell to come in to Vanderbilt? I think that's the key. Now, Harrell, again, is the guy at Alabama from Louisville, reportedly, well, I know his trainer and, and, and quite well, and he does run 4-1 or 4-2. But you've got to be able to find a receiver who's a, a, a lot better than him, and and there's there there are guys that are out there. Trust me, I, I promise you. There, there there's the kid from Central Arkansas uh, that played the last couple of years. Uh, I actually evaluated him, and and he's a pretty good player. Uh, you know, he ended up, I believe, transferring out, and he was one of the better players at the FCS level. Those are the types of players uh, that you got to be able to go out and get, Chris. Well, there would literally probably not be another person on this earth that knows that better than you do. Um, I, I guess 
this is where I'm putting it together in my mind, right? I guess the assumption that I'm making when I hear you talking is that you're saying LSU, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, those schools are going to spend their time and energy scouring the FBS guys and maybe not put in as much time on the FCS guys as, say, Vanderbilt might, and that's where they get an edge. Well, I, I, I think that's a good point, what you're making. You're saying that, okay, you've got a chance to like go out and get the, the guy that I'm talking about from Central Arkansas. What I'm really yeah. saying is, no, you cannot let them win on those guys. You yeah. might be able to say, give up Tyler Harrell, but you, you got to make sure that, hey, if I'm going to give up Tyler Harrell, then I'm not going to go give up the kid from Central Arkansas, right? Those are the types of things you've got to be able to do if you're going to be able to continue to, I guess, use the NIL money money to your advantage. That's more of my point. What do you know about the collective that Jason Burns is heading up? Not not much at all. Okay. Yeah, nobody seems to. So, (laughs) yeah, I, I don't mean that in a snide way. I just, just, I, I don't know much about it. Right. I mean, and well, how do you feel about it? Do you feel like that's something that every school has a collective now? This isn't some secret. Yeah. So what do you feel about, you know, that and, and, and what it can actually mean? Well, I mean, they're they're obviously late to the party, but you have to. I mean, again, I'm not against any of this stuff. It's just, um, you know, unfortunately, while they're and again, I don't mean to be snide to them, but while they're building facilities they should have built 20 years ago, um mm-hmm. You know, that's taken up a lot of the energy that could have been getting a head start on this. Yeah, and and, and, and for me, uh, I think the big co- – when you're talking about the collective, uh, if you, let's say you get money from all these different alumni, right? But it, it really is going to come down to how much does Vanderbilt really care about athletics. Yeah. Right? And then that, that's the bottom line. At the end of the day, like – that's what the collective is all about, is how important is it? Because there is the, the what we've seen at Vanderbilt is what we what we what we really have witnessed over the last 10 years, particularly uh, just some of the games me and you have been to in baseball. We've been to with so many Vanderbilt games that we've seen each other at over the last yeah. decade. Yeah, a we've bunch. seen a national championship. Now, you can say it's baseball or whatever. But that's discounting the fact that LSU doesn't have tradition in baseball, that an Arkansas wouldn't have a recent tradition in baseball, that if you start going through the, the, the South Carolina doesn't, didn't win a national championship in 2011, 2012. If you're just going to discount that, then that gives you an excuse for NIL with Vanderbilt in football. But if yeah. you don't discount what we just said, and you were covering South Carolina during that run and all that stuff. I don't even know if that's – I think those are the correct years. But my point being, particularly if you go back to the 80s with LSU, there's so much history with baseball with other teams in this conference and before the NIL came along. Yeah. So I do believe that because of what you've seen Vanderbilt do in baseball, that can really be uh, mirrored with football. What do you think the appetite is among former players to contribute to the collective? I think there could be an appetite. You got to just imagine, okay, you got 
a lot of players that uh, I wouldn't say a lot of players. Uh, uh, the players that we've had that have played in the league had longevity, maybe yeah. more longevity than other teams in the conference, quite frankly. Uh, so maybe that helps in terms of what they could bring to the table. But I don't think that needs to be the focus of the, you know, like, yeah, okay, sure, I can give money, other players can give money. But the real money at Vanderbilt, if what you're saying is that you're Vanderbilt and you haven't given the money up to this point, right, Chris, is that the money should come from the people outside of athletics. Yeah. That people are the ones you have to recruit to really I guess ingratiate them into the NIL collective. You know what I'm saying? To a degree. Yeah. But well, right. Right now, the money has to come from the outside. But I, I think part of the debate that I was getting at is it, it may move a different direction to where it comes from the schools themselves directly. You know, now, 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 when you say that, clarify. Well, I mean, there's been talk of congressional regulation. You had a Supreme Court justice make a comment on the, the business model having basically been, you know, more or less illegal. I'm putting words in his mouth, but um, the sentiment is that eventually Congress may get involved. And I mean, I think what I'm driving at, Corey, is the thought is you're going to see something that's regulated in terms of how much money each school can spend. Um, and, and that given that these players are kind of looked at as employees of the schools, that would open the door uh, maybe for the schools to fund a lot of this themselves. And I'm sure they would obviously solicit donors from, uh, you know, from alums and, and the places they would normally get them. But the, the point is, I think that the feeling I get is that the structure of this may eventually change. Now, where I don't know how they fix it is what you do and how that in, integrates with Title IX, uh, because that's that's the big thing that's the really complicating factor. But I, I've just heard a little bit of private chatter on this, and I, I get the sense that it's not going to stay the way that it is structured forever, and there's going to be some more regulation or something along those lines where everybody's more on the same playing field with the resources they can put into it. Because it's like Mike Leach said at Media Day, I don't know if you heard it, but he said, imagine if you go to the NFL today and you uncap all the salaries and you make unlimited free agency year to year. That's basically what you've got in college sports, and that's just not sustainable. Well, I think that's true, but I think one of the things that you also have that Sean Clifford, a guy who I've spent some time with at Penn State, very, very – I remember one time I was talking with him at when I was doing a call with Penn State at one point and a couple years back, and he knew all about puts and calls years ago. And I was like, wow, this kid is impressive. And his unionizing attempts. What that suggests is that if you're going to say what Mike Leach said, that you're not understanding that there is not a union – and for most of these kids, right? You, you start preparing the NFL. We have a union. I was a part of the union. So my point being, don't compare. Of course, that's what you've created because you don't have to now allow them to unionize. And then you can make that argument that he's making. But without yeah. that unionization, you cannot make that argument. Yeah, I, I just. I no, think no, it's no, going to. You understand what I'm saying there? I just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get it. I mean, it, it's just so complicated. And, and Title IX is. It would be a lot easier to predict, I think, if it weren't for Title IX. I don't know how that part gets handled. Well, I mean, so explain that a little bit deeper. 
Well, okay, let, let's say that we have some sort of ruling by which we say, okay, every team gets, I don't know, a million bucks a year in NIL money to use for football, and nobody can go over that cap. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's great, and that, that solves the problem of you know, finding competitive balance where, you know, the, the rumor was Texas A&M paid $30 million for its recruiting class last year. I, you know, that, that amount has been in dispute, but you know, the, the fact is that's, you know, roughly $30 million more than Vanderbilt paid for its last year, I think. And so the, the point is you got two teams in a conference that are playing on a very uneven playing field that would solve it if it's regulated um, and everybody's playing on the same field, but then how do you do that? And with Title IX, you say, well, you know, we're going to allow the schools to pay the football players, but if we've got equality, you know, they have to pay the women's athletes the same money. Well, that's when you start running into problems of, of really being able to afford it, and that, that's where I wonder, like, how is that resolved? Because obviously, and no offense to women, you know, athletes, but the market values – for football and and whatever those other sports are, are not exactly equivalent. Let me ask you something. If you're in South Carolina and you got Aja Wilson, would you create about $150,000 to get her to come to South Carolina? Uh, I mean, you might. Was it Texas Tech last you week might. that had a booster that underwrote twenty five grand for every player? I mean, now who was that again? I'm sorry. Texas Tech women's basketball, but I mean, right, I think I, mean, I think these are outliers, don't you? Asia Wilson at Texas Tech women's basketball. Asia Wilson is maybe the best player in the WNBA right now. My point: when she was at South Carolina, she completely changed the the face of that program to a large degree, and that's why they're doing what they're doing now under Don Staley. So my point being, when you have certain uh, athletes. They yeah. demand a little bit more, and and so that that'll go that'll break down Title IX to a degree because Aja Wilson transcends men's or women's sports in, in to a degree. There's the way that you know Bryce Young may transcend men's or women's sports. So I think that's where again the unionization has to come into play, whether it be for men or women in college sports, uh, so they can make sure that they protect everyone else because there's always going to be some players that just have more intrinsic value yeah those players are going to get more money and and i think that's the thing that you're kind of walking a fine line with there chris in terms of saying we're going to regulate well you can't regulate the individual's earning power and that's really what this is all about in the first place that's like you saying okay a coach has one 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 and then james franklin you just can't go to penn state until you you know, do this, this, or that. No, I mean, he won, and he and his earning power increased. So that's the reason why Penn State offered him a job. Same thing, Clark Lee. He wins here, his earning power increases. And that's the same, that's the reason why there were coaches who were on the staff that ended up leaving because they had increased their stock even through a tumultuous season because they're, they, they were better in terms of better viewed after their performance and whatever facet it may have been. In Jesse Vanderbilt's case, for example, at 13 interceptions, nobody really realizes that Vanderbilt had 13 interceptions. So it's varying degrees of how people's, I guess, performance is evaluated, but the intrinsic value of the individual is more what this is all about to me. 
Right. Well, when when you say union, I was thinking football players, but you're thinking this is union of college athletes. Well, no, union of every a sport. Like the right. That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 No question. I mean, like, so women's basketball, they definitely need a union. Same thing, men's basketball. You know, you can have, or maybe they can unionize together. I'm not sure exactly how that will work. I don't think the WNBA and 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 uh, I think there they, they, there may be some. Uh, correlation there with the WNBA and NBA. I think those players' unions are separate, though. Um, I, I just i am so proud of what the WNBA has done in terms of their stances. It, it, they, they've been able to kind of go outside of what the norms are in terms of what you would expect from the quote-unquote staying within the box. And they've been able to really spur awareness nationally uh, with so many different subjects uh, in terms of just not, not, not society, you know. So, uh, again, I, I, I really believe that uh, unionization is important when it comes to your individual's earning power uh, and their capability to protect that. And I think that's what uh, Sean Clifford was trying to get done at Penn State. No, that that's a really good point, and I, I think it makes it a little bit easier to see it come together when when you put it like that, which is something I really had not connected the dots on. Yeah, I think you know, I think the thing that I agree with you about from the regulatory standpoint, if it is regulated, uh, Chris, which is something you mentioned, it's the same thing as cryptocurrency. If you regulate cryptocurrency, then what you're going to do is actually substantiate its value. Yeah. So I don't have a problem with the regulation. So, you know, you come back and you regulate what you're doing with, uh, I mean, this NIL money and how it's being distributed and, and Texas A&M can't get 30, and will get one. Uh, that's fine. It, you can regulate it all you want to. You're only going to increase the value of the athletes and drive their price up, you know, if you start regulating. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing that, uh, has happened in a lot of different things that we've seen through society. Well, I have a feeling we'll talk about that subject again, uh, maybe later in the year as, as things develop. But let me hit you with a couple more before I <laughs> hit the bed for the night. Believe 22 asks, what is Coach Clark leading? Excuse me, Coach Clark Lee's ceiling here, an occasional bowl, an annual bowl, or eight plus wins each year? Well, I think his ceiling is beyond it, – it could be, okay, let's say he gets three more classes like this, right? Okay, when I look at Notre Dame getting to the playoffs, and I think a lot of times what Clark Lee sees is Notre Dame, which a lot of people don't realize is Notre Dame is one of the tougher schools academically, nationally. Nobody really thinks about Notre Dame like that necessarily, but – Traditionally, probably in the top 25, the top 30. Very similar academic requirements to Vanderbilt. Now, they've got a full stadium. They've got the tradition. They've got names going all the way back to Joe Montana. You've got so many different uh, historical references, whether it's 1988, Tony Rice. You don't necessarily have that as much here at Vanderbilt. But I still think with in terms of the city, and how he sees how the city could melt into a similar um, trajectory, so to speak. Because remember, Notre Dame, people forget about the mid-'80s with Jerry Faust and Notre Dame going down to Miami and being 
being kind of average for a while. After they won the 1979 Cotton Bowl, Chris, they they were average for a while before they kind of picked it back up in the late 80s. They were the Jerry Faust years where they were respectable, but but not necessarily a, a, as good as some people um, maybe maybe even thought that they were. You know, that's back when I'm talking about Steve Berline and those years. So I think I think really Clark Lee believes that Vanderbilt may may be able to get and make that jump that Notre Dame did in the late 80s, specifically 1988, uh, Major Harris versus Tony Rice in the 1988 Fiesta Bowl. You know, I, I think in some ways they actually have more leeway and flexibility with admissions and, and on some administrative things than Notre Dame does. Well, that's pretty interesting to hear and, and pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've, I've always maintained I don't think their academic restrictions out of high school are as restrictive. <laughs> Forgive me for being repetitive there, but as, as people maybe, I mean, yes, every school in the league can get in better players than they do, but at some point you've got to say that hey, they've got to do the classwork here, which you know is not easy, and I don't think that the bar is set at an unreasonable spot given all the factors here. Yeah, and I don't think it's unreasonable either. Um, in fact, for me, I did four internships while I went to school here, and the schoolwork was not, oh, you could just, no, you've got to get the schoolwork in. So I do believe that uh, you can do both and be multifaceted. But uh, I agree. I, I think that it's doable. Uh, I think you have, a, at least when I was here, the support system was, was very good. One person that, you know, I haven't even said in, in years that I would love to say her name, Sharon Shields, amazing. You know, somebody like her just supported so many of us as athletes. And those are the types of people that want to see you succeed. And I'm sure there's still people like that here now. Okay, last one before we end this. Godors94 asks... What are your recollections of the 97 game against LSU and Nashville? Was the team extra motivated to play Donardo? And what made the defenses in 96 and 97 so special? Well, I think we were we were extra motivated to play Donardo, number one. Uh, we felt like we were building something. Uh, we were 5-5. Five and five. I mentioned the 65 to nothing debacle earlier in the broadcast with Chris. But that the, what made those defenses special uh, was up the middle. I think any defense or football, to me, is played up the middle of the field. You got to have a good running back. You got to have a good quarterback, a good center, a good Mike linebacker, a good defensive tackle, and a good safety. Those are where you win football games. And we had a, the best linebacker in the country, in my opinion, at the time, and Jamie Duncan. And then those other guys developed around them, Anthony Jordan, Carlton Hall. Carlton Hall had a spectacular 1997 season. Uh, I thought Glenn Young was very underrated. Ryan Alls up the middle at nose tackle was incredible. Uh, and, and, and I felt like that's the reason why those defenses, particularly the 97 with Alls, uh, we had – and we just had a lot of good players. I, I felt like um, – I think everybody in our secondary played in the league. So th th that alone, and then all the linebackers played in the league. Uh, so I, I, I thought there was some talent. Rock Batten, who's a coach at Innsworth High School, I spent some time with them last week, was just a phenomenal player. 
He was absolutely phenomenal and would have played in the NFL, no question, if he hadn't uh, gotten hurt the next year after I left. We came in together. So you, you had, you had the, the chemistry there, and we were aggressive. We played predominantly man coverage, all-out blitzing team. Woody Woodenhofer, uh, defensive coordinator with the Steel Curtain and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, Norm Parker, one of the, the greatest defensive minds in Big Ten history. Uh, the names go on and on. Ron Aiken, Perry Fuel ended up being an NFL defensive coordinator. Um, I'm forgetting a lot of names, you know what I'm saying? But, it, it, again, it was a, a hell of a coaching staff and, and some good players. Corey, loved our time together. I know we're planning to do, I, I hope, a bunch of these during the season. Uh, thank you for your time. Before you leave, tell people about Draft Nasty and all the things that you do there. Yeah, I appreciate it. You always uh, give me a shout, man, and you've been such a big part of uh, us when we've worked together in the past, just the knowledge you've been able to share with me. Uh, and and again, we, we cover all the sports, and a lot of the time it's just draft recaps. That's where I really take a lot of time with draft recaps for Major League Baseball because it's after it's over with, and then you kind of go back and see what these teams have done because – the reason why I look, uh, concentrate on that, Chris, is because you won't hear these names for years, right? We just talked about Kyle Nevin earlier in the broadcast with the Dodgers in the 11th round. You may not hear his name for six years. Chris McIlvain, eighth-round pick with the Cincinnati Reds, you may not hear his name, but you know what I mean? So it, it's pretty interesting to me to kind of recap some of these Major League Baseball drafts as the difference being with the NBA draft those guys either are going to be instant contributors or their second-round picks. They may be in the NBA G League most of the year. And they're signed in contracts that don't guarantee anything. So that's a big part of it. And obviously the NFL draft coverage, where we do the book. Um, and, and those are pretty much the things that you're going to get at Draft Nasty. And a lot of videos and, and video journalistic reviews. Thanks a bunch, my friend. We will talk to you again uh, when the football season gets underway. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We thank our presenting sponsor, Jody Jones DDS. We thank our other sponsors, Sutherland and Belk and MyPerfectFranchise.net. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, and that's how we make this work, please email me at chrislee70 at gmail.com. We also ask that you subscribe to our website, vandysports.com. That is $99 a year. You get things there that you don't get here. And, of course, please rate, review, and subscribe where you see our podcast. That helps us get noticed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at vandysports.com. Follow me at chrislee70. And finally, subscribe to our Vandy Sports YouTube channel as well. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast, which is part of the 440 Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. We'll catch you with another episode coming very soon. <laughs>